0: In 2019, New Zealand has a problem with its housing supply. Where it exists, it's usually in the wrong location. Where it's needed, there are issues with processing, available labor, cost of materials, among other issues. And there's no silver bullet. However, there are new and emerging ideas and technologies that may assist councils meet growing supply demand requirements. Prefabricated housing might be one of those solutions, that's why I brought in Pamela Bell, former chief executive and founder of Prefab New Zealand. I'm here with Pamela Bell, and we're going to have a conversation this afternoon about prefabricated housing. A little bit on Pamela. Um, she has an amazing background and makes me wonder what I've been doing with my life. Currently, she's a consultant on innovative construction, and she works extensively with MB, working as an Endeavor Assessor on the Building Advisory Panel. She's also a board member of Brands and founder of Prefab New Zealand. On top of all of that, she also competed internationally in the Olympics in snowboarding for New Zealand. Aside from that, Um, She has a background in architecture, and she is an expert on prefabricated housing. What I wanted to bring up to her was what should every counselor and counsel generally know about prefabricated housing in New Zealand? And so I thought I'd open with what the heck is prefabricated housing? Pamela, what is it?
1: Thanks for that great lead-in, Tom. Um, Just to qualify, uh, the the, uh, snowboarding exercise was some time ago, (laughs) maybe 20 years ago. Um, So I have spent the last 10 years completely obsessed with prefabrication or off-site construction, um, and central government is now introducing the term modern methods of construction, or MMC. We don't want to get bogged down in acronyms or terms, so we'll just say prefab or prefabrication going forward. It basically means any part of a building that's built off-site. So currently about a third of all our buildings have got prefabricated components in them. They might be at the scale of the residential home, they might be uh, roof and truss, uh, pre-nailed elements, um, they might be wall panels, they may be cabinetry for your bathroom or kitchen, door and window joinery, that type of thing. So very traditional elements that are then assembled at site. When we talk about prefabrication and the future possibilities, we talk about moving into more closed panels or uh, utility pods, bathroom pods. You might be aware that there's something like a dozen trades that go into a bathroom pod so it makes a lot of sense to line these puppies up inside a factory and make a hundred of them at one time. So it's about getting efficiencies through a manufactured approach to construction.
0: Okay, well that's really interesting to note that it's all really about efficiencies and bringing a number of trades together in one setting to expedite some of the development of a house. What does the market tell us about this? Is there an acceptance in the market, not only on the outcome, the product, but also in the process?
1: That's a really good distinction because prefabrication is a process, and not a product. It's essentially another tool in the construction industry's tool belt. What we do get confused with culturally and historically is the idea of a prefab being a thing. Many of us went to school in prefabricated classrooms. They were generally built as temporary structures. They were too hot in summer, too cold in winter, and they were certainly used well past their use by date. We do have a number of more um, relevant and successful social historical examples, like the railway house or um, hydro scheme housing, such as the town of Twizel in the South Island, where temporary prefabricated housing has become permanent and part of the social structure. So when we talk about general acceptance, it's either talking about the end user or the construction industry. Now the end user just wants a home that is warm and dry and where they can raise their family. So for them, it doesn't matter how a house is built or assembled, they just want the attributes of prefabrication. They want the known outcomes, the higher quality, the reduced time, the on-budget, and the reduced waste and increased sustainability that you can get from well-executed prefabrication.
0: The product. They're focusing on that.
1: (laughs) Now, the, um, the deliverers of the building, the construction industry, they just simply want to make profit. Let's be open here. So if they can produce two houses in the time it took to produce one, then they can increase uh, their profits by reducing those overheads. So there is a benefit, a value benefit, if you like, for everyone in the chain.
0: Got it. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense that there is a process that's really what we're talking about in terms of prefabricated housing. People with the outcomes are also very aware of that process, but they're in tune with the quality that they're getting. Is there a difference between the quality you might get from a prefabricated house and one from that's not prefabricated?
1: So because prefabrication is essentially a collection of components or panels or the volumes, like the bathroom pods we mentioned, or in some cases it might be a complete building, what we call a transportable house. So um, because it can be in any range of those types of prefabrication, there is a whole range of outcomes. But every single one of those built elements, those products and methods have to be compliant with the New Zealand Building Code and they have to um, obviously conform with our requirements around engineering, seismic resistance, durability, weather tightness. So everything is consented the same as a traditional housing solution. So there is no difference in the compliance regime for prefabricated housing Um, But there are some changes coming up and being debated. Uh, Certainly, the entity that I ran for the last 10 years, Prefab NZ, did a lot of advocacy into MB around some of our members who are using more high-tech manufacturing methods within a factory, how they want to be able to, I guess, consent a range of, say, panels rather than have individual panel inspections, Hmm, because that really slows up the process. So if we're going to get out the efficiencies that we are able to get potentially, then we should be doing what we can see offshore in really advanced economies like in Scandinavia and Sweden, where the factory is accredited, rather than each of the individual components or parts that are coming out. So this is what MB's building legislation reform package is looking at at the moment, is what does a manufacturing certification scheme look like?
0: Very interesting because clearly right now people are concerned about the product and the outcome rather than the process um, in meeting certain standards. So that's really key to understand. Given the fact that we have a fairly broad um, sector with lots of housing kinds or needs, so we have low income, we have obviously high income, middle class, we have certain sectors that might need social housing, temporary housing, and so forth, is there a real good source Um, Or is there a best source for prefabricated housing? Would you say it should be marketed towards one, or would a council need to orient itself towards one kind of sector in prefab?
1: Oh, cool. So there's a couple of questions in there. So the specific takeaways for council and councillors I'll just touch on in a moment. But first off, because prefabrication is such a broad brush application and can be applied to cheap housing, expensive housing, detached housing, medium-density housing then there is no kind of one answer. Of course, efficiencies come with repetition. So the more of the same type of bathroom pod you can produce, then the more chance you have to produce it faster, with less material wastage, and at a cheaper price. So in that case, we want to look for repetition and standardisation. This doesn't mean that there are little boxes of tiki tacky This is not about design repetition. It's just that how many times do you really need to design, say, an accessible bathroom, which means hotels, retirement villages, student accommodation, any place where you get a repetition of a bathroom type is ripe for use of repetitive bathroom volumes or bathroom pods. So that gives you an idea of where standardisation can be useful in a design sense. But obviously there's limitations to that. And um, one of the things we are seeing is a lot more low-rise, medium-density types of housing. Mm. So Housing NZ is doing some great three-storey walk-ups that use cross-laminated timber, which is a fabulous resource in terms of added value timber. And for New Zealand, this is a really big deal that we could shift from potentially exporting 60% of our raw logs into exporting uh, more added value timber products. Oh, wow.
0: Okay. Yeah. There's a value up, um, opportunity there. That's fantastic. And so um, you, you basically highlighted that there's multiple uses or opportunities for the use of prefab. And as communities start to grapple with some of the demands that they have, this is a resource that can speed along the process at a good quality. Um, and provide what the community needs at that pace so that we're not looking at like a basically, a you know, something temporary that you might have gone to school in. But this is something permanent, long term, sustainable, and can be provided very quickly.
1: Absolutely. And there's a whole range of players out there in the built environment who are skilled at providing these types of housing. And a number of them sit inside the Z directory, which is an online uh, searchable database. So you can find folks who are already producing housing in your region. Of course, there's a transportable aspect to it as well. So I would encourage people to look outside their direct region. That's a region.
0: really good point. Absolutely. So how many are there? organizations are there out there producing Prefab housing?
1: Well, within the Prefab and Z directory, um, there's up to, I think, somewhere around 350, 400 organisation members, and they're spread right across the built environment spectrum. So they're roughly about a third specifiers, designers, architects, engineers, a third producers, so builders, uh, construction, assembly, product, and then a third are research and building officials and other folks who are involved with um, being professionals in that built environment space. Mm -hmm. So you really need your dream team. Of course, there's a really broad range of um, early adopters right through to quite recent um, self-starters. So it's great um, to have that variety on offer. There's also a real variety between people who are using manufactured or automated processes indoors versus those that are using traditional construction practices indoors. So, for example, Concision is a factory in Christchurch which has got about $10 million worth of automated equipment. So this is where wall panels are made on flatbeds and rollers um, transfer them across, you know, windows are installed when they're on hanging racks, and you end up with a whole house in vertical wall panels stacked on the back of a truck. And it's amazing because it's then virtually assembled at site in a few hours. So you have a watertight structure. So it really makes you think about watertightness and the ways that we achieve it currently. We, of course, leave everything out in the rain and wait for it to dry. So we could be a lot more efficient if we brought closed-in wall panels to site and um, ended up with a watertight structure you know, within the day.
0: That's really interesting. So that brings up the question for me. You've mentioned standards before. And are there standards across the prefabrication industry that are met or, a minim- or at least a minimum bar that everybody covers? Because I've also been to... A- Um, a prefab um, facility or two, they weren't that sophisticated. Mm -hmm. So is there a minimum that many are looking to achieve?
1: There's such a variety out there from that kind of traditional house in a shed idea through to this automated factory. Uh, It's up to each individual company to develop their own quality assurance standards what Concision does, for example, is they subscribe to the ISO 9000 um, methodology, and certainly this new uh, government building legislative reform package is suggesting, you know, a manufacturer certification that is possibly similar to an ISO 9000. We're yet to understand because it hasn't been designed, but the idea is to help provide that level of consistency amongst the providers. I guess also just mentioning on standards, what's recently happened this week is that 120 standards are now freely available, which is um, these are the guidance for design. Um, So this is a great move because these have typically been behind a paywall. So there are moves happening to digitise both the building consent process, the design process. There's talk through this legislative reform package about a building product database So there are a number of moves afoot to increase um, the quality of the bill outcome.
0: Oh, really interesting to note that. So assuming that councils are recognizing and and obviously want to participate in in every opportunity to find solutions for their community to meet the demand, what can councils do generally to incentivize this sort of activity and to encourage high standards, confidence in the public, and so that everybody understands the product that they're going to get with an improved process?
1: Correct. So I would definitely recommend seeking out information and upskilling yourself. So whether that's internally within your council, you know, engage with PrefabNZ, the prefabnz.com website has got loads of free resources and um, they were developed when I was there. So they're generally one page infographics. So they make it really easy and fun. There's a number of videos on the YouTube panel for Prefab, YouTube channel Sorry for PrefabNZ. There are a couple of specific uh, initiatives uh, that did happen under the Prefab and Zed banner that are worth mentioning. One was the design competition called Snug, a Snug, a Home in My Backyard. And a Snug is a slightly more user-friendly term to an accessory dwelling unit or an ADU, which I think sounds like some terrible disease. <laughs> but the Snug is a really beautiful outcome. We went to Auckland Council and started the conversation to say, what could we do with a souped-up granny flat in your backyard? And also, what would it look like if it wasn't just 10 square meters before you need a building consent, but if it was 30 square meters, like what happens in the Netherlands? And they said, sure, but we'd need to control the design outcome, to which the answer was a design competition. We had 190 people register, or teams rather. The teams had to have design, manufacturer, and student or apprentice input, Mm -hmm. and we had 89 schemes come through um, the final stage gate, and they were judged into 12 finalists. It's all on the SnugHome.nz website. But the point of that competition is to show two things, really, that there's a massive amount of grassroots interest in the architecture and the manufacturing community wanting to deliver solutions for New Zealanders. So this is about industry fronting up. It's not just a local government or central government-led solution. And the other thing that's really important is um, that we need to produce more uh, options, I guess, other than just the single-family home, with a 30-year mortgage, you know, that single relationship with a bank, we need to produce more options for housing. And the great thing about these snugs is if you put them in your backyard, you reduce the price of the development because you take the cost of the land away. And in many cases, like Auckland, that's up to half of the price. So in a way, it's a way to provide solutions that are intergenerational, that help families house their young professionals or help their extended family to live on site, Um, I have a feeling that if I built one in my backyard, I'd want to live in it and rent the front part of the house out to the children. But um, the other thing that's nice is this is the uh, ADU or accessory dwelling unit is something that we're seeing councils offshore, particularly around California, look to incentivise. So they will reduce their permitting or development contributions type fees if you're producing or putting in an, an accessory dwelling unit in your backyard that will directly go to rent um, out to at an affordable level, for example, and they'll reduce the need for car parking if you're within a certain distance of public transport networks. So I think the lesson here for our uh, local councils is to look at how the district plan inhibits or encourages this kind of mum and dad gentle density in their own backyard.
0: Right, right. It's
1: lovely opportunities there.
0: So what you're saying to me is that you're seeing not only in new zealand but internationally there's a trend towards bucking the white picket fence need a big house a large garden you've got to have this space to recognizing listen there's some great prefabricated design options all around the world i've also heard the example in oregon as well (laughs) that um, uh, councils are um, a number of them are allowing uh, free permitting basically and if you provide the house for somebody for five years, they'll build it for free. They'll actually pay for it to be built so that that home occupier can actually get a place, get their, their feet under their ground and get back out into the community with a little bit of a nest egg. And then that homeowner actually gets to keep that house as a granny flat or whatever it might be. So there, I think there are a variety of options out there, but a key part of what I was hearing you say was the fact that there's a, a growing market opportunity Uh, You've got to work collaboratively within your community to recognize that there are many players and there is a, a great outcome or uptake in the fact that younger people may be involved in this process. There are more jobs and opportunities and some entrepreneurialism using existing island resources rather than importation for a lot of these um, these things. So that's absolutely fantastic. One thing that you brought up and you previously mentioned to me before that the environment is a real consideration. And I, in some of my um, assessment, there's a huge cost savings, not only for a purchaser and through that process for efficiency, but also reduced impact on the environment. Ultimately, you're going to have less waste and more efficiency with manpower, less people driving or commuting to a site because because it can be put up quicker and so forth. Can you expand on that a little bit?
1: For sure. So at a really simple um, level, and on the um, prefab and website, there's an infographic called Why Prefab, which shows the quality, time, cost, sustainability, and design benefits. The sustainability benefits are really huge. In the construction industry, you may know the construction industry is known as the 40% industry. 40% of landfill is attributed to construction waste. Wow. It's a horrific That's statistic. Huge. Yeah, so prefabrication through waste minimization can save something like two and a half percent on the tender price. I've seen sites where there is virtually no wastage at site. So, for um, a neat freak like me, I really love that stuff. But also, you've got an Um, An aspect of pre-design with prefabrication, you design to the material widths, um, or a carpet factory, for example, will make carpet to the widths that you require. Mm. Um, So there are some of those literal product minimization benefits. I think if we pan out for a minute, you know, the big thing here is how do we reduce our personal footprints? And you were talking before about um, the states and these accessory dwelling units. I read a stat that said 42% of US homeowners would like to live in smaller houses. You know, the average size in the states is something like 240 square meters. It is, yes. I live in a 70 square meter house. You know, it's been 10 years, we're a family of four in there. It's really totally possible if you don't want to spend all weekend doing up your house and doing DIY, then you can live in a smaller footprint. And while prefab is a process, not a product, it does sit alongside some of these more portable solutions. And of course, um, the community, the public, we've been really um, entranced with the whole tiny home movement. Um, we've been looking at grand designs and some of the wonderful technology that comes through on that show. And there are we're all becoming more upskilled with the options out there. And I think this is the whole thing ultimately is putting the power back in the consumer to make that decision. We don't just have to get a stock standard, um, standalone house in a large subdivision with a triple garage out front and sea of concrete. We can actually live in a more of a communal way uh, through some of these medium density housing options, or we can give up the mortgage completely and live in a really compact house and just engage much more fully with society in the rest of that time.
0: It comes down to quality over quantity. Um, and it's really about having the time because you can't get that back. So Mm -hmm. what you might not spend in a mortgage, you actually get that time Mm -hmm. not having to spend it on a mortgage because you're spending your time with your family.
1: And I think some of these, uh, the way these lifestyle questions are being questioned more strongly by our millennials, by our children. You know, our children are going to be leading these conversations. It's the Greta Thunbergs of the world who will be prompting us to think about the ways that we're living, and reducing our footprint is a really obvious way to get started. I think also our young people will provoke us to provide more home ownership options they'll make us query why we even talk about ownership when we should be talking about access to housing or access to a home and so i'm really interested to see what options there are out there around shared equity there are some schemes coming out of california again i think it's called point.com where you can sell a proportion of your home back to a financial entity who then obviously owns a percentage of the increase over time. Um, There are other platforms even in New Zealand, I think it's called Muawi, which is about how to connect people to do collective ownership of housing. So I think there's some really interesting um, FinTech type platforms starting to emerge, which will engage young people initially but provide access to housing in ways that we haven't traditionally um, stretched ourselves to think about.
0: It's really fascinating to talk about different ways that we're going to finance what we own and what we could potentially own. I think it's Mm -hmm. absolutely extraordinary with technological changes. Let's take the opposite side for just a minute. Let's just say I was a councillor and I said, yeah, yeah, all of this prefabrication you say there's employment there's you say there's an ups, upside for technology but what i can say to you is that oh well this is just going to get automated over time more 3d printers fewer people employed is there really is there really ultimately going to be an upside to this or is this really You know, how far off do we see things changing? Because the world does seem to be changing pretty quickly right now. Would you see the evolution of labor input into prefabricated housing and the the manufacturing industry changing rapidly? Or was this something that we as a society can evolve with over time and plan for?
1: Cool. So I think I'm hearing, watch out, the machines are coming. Yes. Um, Yeah. So I think AI, artificial intelligence, is opening up some fantastic opportunities for us some of these other tools around visualization you know uh, virtual reality augmented reality they enable for example a builder to put on some glasses at site where the drawing of how it's meant to be matches up with actually what's been built at site oh that's amazing so so some of those types of tools would improve the quality outcomes of the construction industry but the industry has a notorious reputation for being low on uptake of technology and possibly as a direct result, very low on productivity improvements. This is a worldwide trend. It's not just a New Zealand trend. Uh, So there's some obvious opportunities around technology. Um, We're also seeing some really interesting changes to operating models. We're now starting to see architects who are manufacturers as well. So people like makers of architecture in Wellington, they have their own fabrication studio as well as being designers. So we're seeing some blending of operating models happening out there.
0: That's amazing. And I
1: think this is an interesting opportunity for councils to think about. We want to provide homes or roofs. What does that actually mean? To what extent should we provide that? To what extent should industry provide that? I just saw this morning, um, you know, as we're moving into this more collaborative models like co-working, typically co-working either happens in a specific co-working space or it happens naturally in cafes. These are our kind of community centres of Mm -hmm. now. But what I saw is uh, Supreme, the coffee manufacturer, is uh, now produced a co-working space where the coffee is free. So it's inverting that cafe experience. So I think this is where the interesting crossovers will come for our councils, is how to look at housing and the part that they produce or provide and the parts that the industry and the public and end user provide And just flip it on its head and work out other ways to look at it, Um, you know, housing as a service.
0: So that prompts the question, can prefabricated builders actually be nimble enough to meet those changing needs?
1: Well, what we're seeing is a lot of the younger graduates out of architecture and design disciplines are driving change themselves. This has happened in the States where the quality of the construction is so low that the architects developed their own factories to be able to control the quality of the outcome. We've seen that in California, we've seen that in San Francisco with Factory OS, um, which is in one of those converted nuclear submarine um, manufacturing facilities. So there's some really interesting blending of those operating models. I think the traditional model of delivering um, alterations and additions will always be there, there will always be a bespoke craft-based activity, but there will be aspects of repetition standardisation around like the bathroom pods that we've talked about, perhaps around roof sections or staircases or walls, which can happen mm-hmm. in a factory-type environment. Right. We will always need the creative brain, the problem solver, and the architecture degree itself is essentially a design thinking, problem-solving discipline. So we will always need that creative aspect. The machines will be helpful. They can store the design uh, dimensions, if you like, the 3D components that we drag and drop. An end user might even be able to influence their own design using some of those pre-designed components. That digital uh, blueprint, if you like, might then go directly through to council where there'll be aspects of it that have been pre-consented so there are lots of opportunities to speed up the process through some controlled design outcomes, some standardization, and a lot more integrated digital interface.
0: Okay. Well, that's really interesting. <laughs> so given the fact that the pace of society is moving quickly with technology and changing demographics and their needs, what do you see the biggest barrier is for the uptake of this? There's got to be something out there that you see as being like the hurdle. The one thing that people got to get their head around to say, listen, this is actually completely acceptable. Once you get your, because there, there's those that are in the know and who have listened to this podcast and know a whole mm-hmm. lot more hopefully, but also those that don't. Is it about information? Is it about mm-hmm. technology? Mm-hmm. Is it about the planning system? Mm-hmm. Or is it all three combined? What, what would you say?
1: Well, without wanting to point a finger at anyone or anything, you know, I used to think it was our cultural inertia that we're just so happy with the status quo. It's really difficult to shift. And of course, you have to show twice as many value adds before you can get something or a system to change. You can't just do like for like value add to make people change. So that's really interesting. So we've got to doubly prove ourselves and the reason for changing. But ultimately, I think, or what I could see in evidence in terms of the coordination now between central, local, government and industry, is coordination is the greatest barrier. We actually need more leadership and more experts and we actually, this is a Pam phrase which is a little bit difficult, we need the dictator with the checkbook. Folks like Singapore have done a fantastic job in this space. We actually just need the experts to get out their checkbooks, write some checks and get housing at scale, getting designed for manufacture and assembly and produced in a way that is more efficient. And if that means using prefabrication, then so be it. But we just need some decisions to be made. We just need some orders to be placed. And the possibility or the capacity and capability is lying latent in a number of our manufacturing facilities. And if we don't get some housing orders through them soon, they will turn to just producing schools or hospitals or other types of the build environment. So I think there's a high risk there and possibly quite a small window of just a few months to act there. Wow, that's so really coordination.
0: Yep, that's really interesting to note that those people with that technology will just go to other places, mm-hmm. other resources, and let the market drive their opportunity. Mm-hmm. So you have something within grasp, it's time to take a look at that hard and quickly and to move forward as quickly. There aren't too many barriers right now. There's obviously a regulatory review going on and there are other things going on in government, but it's going to take councils and leadership within those councils to start driving the train and sending signals to the market that they're needed mm-hmm. and that they need to they need them quickly.
1: That regulatory reform is a slow burn and that will smooth out the path uh, for many of the second wave of adopters. But look, the early adopters have been using prefabrication methods for a long time. keith hay homes of this world they started transporting houses in the 1960s around then the lockwood component based system was produced we have got high-end prefabricated panel and pod manufacturers in operation for over 15 years we have got the dream teams we have got the established capability and we have got the inherent capacity which is the important thing there are aspects of the construction industry which can scale up at a faster rate than traditional so essentially It's just a matter of pushing the button.
0: Okay, so we've got some um, ground under our feet. People have gotten tenured, they've skilled up, and they're ready to go, and they're going to start looking for other sources and other resources to Mm -hmm. actually support the business and investment they've made. Absolutely. Really key to understand. So, Pamela, thank you so much for coming over here. This information is beyond valuable, and if somebody were interested in knowing more or coordinating with you, um, how could they contact you?
1: Thanks for the prompt, Tom. So I'm available to have discussions in this space of innovative construction. I'm at hello at pamelabell.nz. There's a little holding website there. And look, I'm just fascinated by historical, uh, present and future examples of what we're doing in this innovative construction space. So I'm always interested to hear other people's stories.
0: Okay, well, thank you again so much for coming to the show. And um, again, if you guys want to reach out to her, she's she's available. She's obviously very busy on many working groups and tied very tightly in with a lot of people in and around the country. So she's an invaluable resource. Encourage you to reach out and touch base with her. Thank you.